0: Well, last Sunday we began the season of Eastertide. Eastertide, or the season of Easter, or Easter time, some call it. Those from high church backgrounds I know a little bit more about the calendar. But uh, Eastertide is the 50-day period, essentially from Resurrection Sunday all the way up to what we call Pentecost Sunday. And you remember Pentecost Sunday is that commemorative day when 50 days after the resurrection the Holy Spirit fell in Acts 2. A lot of people call that the birthday of the church when Peter stood up with the 12 and he preached and thousands of people were baptized that day. So there's this 50-day period that begins with what we refer to as the first Easter Sunday. A lot of us didn't realize that a lot of the church referred to the seven Sundays from Easter Sunday all the way up to Pentecost as the seven Sundays of Easter. Some call the final six the little Easter's. But the entire period is just a a space of reflection. Easter and the passion of the Christ um, leaves awake, uh, leaves awake in a ripple effect, and it's worthy of not only preparing for through the Lenten season, but upon impact, reflecting upon retrospectively. Of course, we do that all year long, but I also appreciate the fact that the calendar is sacramental, and there are seasons that we can... Heighten our focus. And so Easter tide, the season of Easter will lead us up to Pentecost Sunday. Now, looking back at that first Easter tide, historically, reflectively, um, I, I want to say something about approach to scripture, approach to the Christian narrative, or any religious narrative, but specifically to the Judeo-Christian narrative that we find in Scripture or that we find in our history, our tradition. I believe that the biblical narrative, the narrative of our story, the events that are captured, the creation story, uh, the story of Cain and Abel, the story of Enoch, Noah, Babel, the call of Abram, the patriarchs, Joseph in Egypt, Moses, Joshua, the period of the judges, the period of the kings, the dialectic period of the prophets where we wrestled with our faith, I think all of the events captured and recorded in our narrative hold more weight than that of a mere historical experience. And and let me explain a, a bit on that. The linchpin stories that I just mentioned are not just historical experiences to be reflected upon that out of them we distill one overarching theme or meaning that we are stuck with the rest of our lives and the rest of our faith. I actually think these stories are eternal stories. I think they, they carry more than a one time fixed meaning to be observed hereafter. If we are people of Scripture, if we are people of the Bible, then I, I think in this sense we are properly people of the Bible. The Bible is not a book we genuflect to, reflect on, admire, and memorize the stories of others. It is a it is a conversational beginning, I call it, not a constitutional end. And it actually calls us into those stories. And, and so when people ask me if, if I take the Bible and its stories literally, well, I certainly think there's historical veracity in Scripture, and I think a lot of Scripture is not about history or science. But a lot of times, just tongue-in-cheek, when people say, do you take the Bible literally, I, I respond and say, oh, no, I take it way too seriously to do that. Because the story of Adam and Eve is not were there two people originally and was that on the upper plains of northwest Africa or was it in what we now know as the Fertile Crescent. I think the story of Adam and Eve, the creation story, is a story of all of us. And, And how much more profound is the text when we realize that in this ancient story we're not wrestling with whether or not this happened to two people. We're recognizing that this has happened to billions of us. And to be able to go down into the well with Joseph, to be able to flee to Tarsus with Jonah, to be able to feel the pangs of a prodigal, this is the real wisdom of Scripture. To read 2,000, 2,500, 2,800-year-old pieces of literature and to feel them vibrating in your soul, this is the beauty of the text. And so looking at stories biblically that way as linchpin events not fixed stories but eternal experiences archetypes literally models that we are a part of models that are a part of us models and archetypes that we live into and we live out of their truth continually i think it's powerful to see scripture that way so We live the biblical story, whether that's the creation story, the exodus story, the passion story. when we talk about the passion story, I mean, you think about the paschal cycle, we call it. The cycle of life, death, burial, resurrection, appearances, departures. I mean, this paschal cycle that Jesus lived It's a cycle that all of us are continually living and we don't just get through it once, but it's over and over and over and over again. People ask me if I believe in the born again experience. Oh, you can't believe how much I believe in it. I believe in born again infinity, born again and again and again and again and again. Drew, coming from a Wesleyan background, we talked about the second work of grace, sanctification, the baptism of the Spirit. Sometimes people, knowing I'm from a Wesleyan background, say, do you still believe in a second work of grace? Oh, absolutely, and 117th, and a 248th. I believe in a second, and a third, and a fourth, and a fifth work of grace. And so to be able to live into these stories, uh, I, I think is the real beauty of Scripture. And so that's true, that concept. That overarching concept of how we view Scripture is true of the 50-day space between Easter and Pentecost. Eastertide. Eastertide is a season not just for those first disciples to wrestle through the darkness and to re-embrace Christ, but Eastertide is a season when we literally can set aside space as a church and we can talk about reframing. We can talk about Renewing. Now, you can do it all year long, but this is especially a space for our awareness of resurrection is heightened. We can, uh, Sydney, I was thinking about at uh, the last midrash when we were wrestling with Christology, listening to you talk about the in a safe environment. Can you imagine sitting in a church and wrestling with the deity of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity and to be able to safely? say that those technical creedal doctrines of centuries long ago make less and less sense to me, but I don't know what to replace them with. Just, I don't know that talking, I don't know that the concept that we talked about was nearly as important for you and me in that moment as just knowing that we could do that here. Eastertide is a season when you're drawn from the shadows with Simon Peter and the rooster still crowing in your ears of betrayal. And you're drawn to a fire where Jesus flips a fish and the resurrected Christ says, lovest thou me more than these? Simon, lovest thou me more than these? Eastertide was the season when this fellow who was Simon but became Peter and walked on water and had all of the answers. The guy who was always rebuking Jesus, telling him what he ought to do with his life and Even when voices came from heaven and Moses and Elijah appeared at Transfigurative Mountains, Peter's still the one barging in and saying, we ought to build a cathedral right here. And then, though all of these betray you, deny you, I I wouldn't, I would never do that. I have no capacity to do that. And the rooster crows the second time in a few hours and the Bible says that With the curse words still fresh on his mouth, I don't know the blankety-blank. He looks up and he sees Jesus with Caiaphas and Annas, the high priest, and the Bible says Jesus just looked down at him. And the word spoke not a word, and in that moment full of pathos, the Bible said Peter's heart broke. And he retreated to the shadows, and he wept bitterly. But then a few days later, back to his life fishing, he looks to the shore and he sees the figure of a man, the shadow of a man, the the etching of a profile. And while the other disciples stayed in the boat, he ripped off all of his clothes and into the water he went and he swims to the shore. And there's Jesus stoking a fire, the resurrected Christ. And oh, the brashness, the certainty, it's all gone. Humility, shame, virtue, and to virtue, it's all mixed together in a psychic complex mixture that was just eviscerating his soul. And he squats down beside that figure. And I can see Jesus flip a fish And put a little charred piece of meat On a leaf and hand it to him And whisper, Simon (laughs) And it cuts him Simon Simon I'm not Simon You changed my name I'm Peter, Rock, Cephas Simon And this water walker this rock turned sandbag is taken all the way back to the beginning, lovest thou me more than these? That's Eastertide. Eastertide is a space to be humble and say, I don't know. Eastertide is a season of reframing. I mean, have you ever thought about it? In that 50-day period, the object of their devotion, Jesus, did not shift. But the way they saw Jesus, the way they framed Jesus, the way they understood Jesus, so radically shifted that they almost needed to rename him. Anybody ever thought that? Anybody ever thought about the Christianity of your youth and thought, if, if that's what, if, that's Christ, if I call that Christianity, I don't even know what to call this. Philip Yancey wrote a great book called The Jesus I Never Knew. Brian McLaren in his book, Generous Orthodoxy, has a short little section called The Seven Jesuses I've Known. You ever gone through that? It's like, can, would you mind us renaming you God? Because what I once knew of you and what I know now, if that were a cold, you wouldn't catch it. Eastertide is a season for renewing, reconstructing, resurrecting, rebirthing Easter type. It's interesting to me that Jesus didn't just get up out of the grave on Sunday morning and the next day the spirit fell at Pentecost. He gave them a space of 50 days, a space of humility, a space of bewilderment, a space of being so discombobulated, a space of discomfort and disorientation. Not because God's sadistic, but maybe because that kind of disorientation, that Type of discombobulation, that type of being unsettled and off balance, maybe that's good for the souls of humans like us. Maybe the loosening of our grip on control, ideological control, theological control, philosophical control. On one end of Easter tide, Mary grabs a hold of Jesus. And the Bible says that Jesus literally had to say, let me go. I think those are some of the most underrated words that Jesus ever spoke. Let me go. One of the most profound things you might ever do in your relationship with Jesus is let go of Jesus. Anybody ever watched a relationship be saved by finally dying and letting go of it? Anybody ever watched yourself saved by finally rolling over on your back and stopping with the clutching and the grabbing and just yielding. And in the moment that you thought finally that you would have sunk to the bottom of the ocean of despair, you find a buoyancy of letting go. And you don't die. And in the letting go, in the releasing, life begins to flow again. This is Eastertide. Paul said as much in 1 Corinthians 15, and I wanted you to look at these verses, eight very beautiful verses that I've been reflecting on a lot this week. Paul reflected on the gospel, the overarching story, and he really summarizes Eastertide better than I've ever heard Eastertide summarized in the last few verses. But look at the whole text. Moreover, brethren, Paul didn't talk to women very much. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, but which also you're saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For here's what I delivered to you as the gospel. First of all, that which I also received, number one, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Two, he was buried, three, He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now that's normally where we stop. Christ died, was buried, and resurrected. We stop, but there's a conjunction. It's not just that Christ died, was buried, and was resurrected. Look at verse five, and that he was, this is why I declared, the good news was, he didn't just die, get buried, and resurrected. The good news is, he was seen. He was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, interestingly, Paul uses the word that most indicates rock, Petros, Cephas, the Aramaic that fell from the lips of Jesus when Jesus said, you're no longer going to be Simon, you're going to be a rock, Gibraltar. He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. The Gospels did not record this. Actually, this letter letter was written in 55, 15 to 20 years before any of the Gospels were written, 35 years before the Gospel of John was written, maybe 40. This is the earliest record of those days. And Paul captured, remembered a story that none of the Gospel writers capture, and that was there was 500 people gathered together somewhere, and they saw the resurrected Christ. Verse 7, after that, he was seen by James, then by all of the apostles, and then last of all, after Pentecost, a long way down the road, last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection, we say. Interesting. Paul gives 10 words to the death, he gives four words to the burial. He dedicates 11 words to the resurrection and he dedicates 66 words to the scene. He was seen, Paul said. Six times as many words Paul used to describe the good news that he was seen. Six times as many words for the scene as for the resurrection. Why? Let me... Preface by saying Easter tide is a time of seeing. Easter time is a time of blindness. Easter time is a time of scales falling off of your eyes. Easter time is a time of saying, "Where have you laid him?" and you're talking to him only to hear him call your name. And you respond, Rabboni, and your heart melts. And you grab hold of him and say, I'm never letting you go again. And he uncurls your fingers and says, let me go. That's Eastertide. Eastertide is a time of seeing. And it's not just it's not just ocular capturing or ophthalmologic capturing. It's not just using the physical eyeballs, but... Jesus often utilized that refrain of the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the psalmist, over and over, read the Hebrew scriptures, there was this refrain where God would decry the people's spiritual state and he would say, you have eyes, but you don't see. You have ears, but you don't hear. Anybody said to somebody recently, you're not hearing me. Anybody cared so deeply that your heart broke and you looked at them and you said, you're not, you're not giving me? Have you ever looked at someone and said, you just don't see me? Jesus used that refrain over and over again. One day his disciples and he were walking down the street and there was a blind guy there and the guy was probably a beggar, and the disciples turned him into a theological object lesson. Talk about bad religion. When human beings become abstractions, when human beings and suffering and life becomes theory and navel-gazing, or space for navel-gazing, inspiration for theologizing, my God, what are we doing? They walk, Beside this guy, and right there within earshot of him, they look at Jesus and they don't say, What can we do for this guy? They look at Jesus and say, You know, this makes us think, I wonder why this guy's like this. Was it his parents that sinned or was it him? Is he getting punished for something that he did? I mean, can you imagine being the guy? It's like, Hey, uh, I can hear y'all, I'm right here. Eugene Peterson in the message is wonderful. Sometime Eugene in the message, there are so many superlatives, you can't get to the nominative, but it's just a bunch of adverbs and adjectives, but I really love the message. He draws some things out so well. And in this text, when the disciples say, "Who sinned, this guy or his mom and dad? Peterson has Jesus looking at them and saying, you're asking the wrong question. We were talking in class this morning, it's amazing. It seems like the first half of your religious life you try to fill up a book with all the right answers and you somewhere get to the smugness and satisfaction of having your book with all the right answers in it and then comes the midlife spiritual crisis of oh my god i've got a book full of answers and they're answers to the wrong questions i filled up a whole dadgum book with answers to the wrong questions good answers Great answers. Built a wonderful house on an island that's sinking two feet a year. Perfect architecture. Beautiful place. Problem is, I just spent all that money and spent all that life building a palace on an island that's going to be underwater in a few years. The Bible says that he said, you're asking the wrong question. Um, You're trying to assign blame. This is not a cause and effect thing. And instead of getting into the deep theology, the Bible says Jesus healed him. After he healed him, the Bible says that the Pharisees called the guy in, interrogated him about Jesus, and they said, you know, did a sinner just do this to you? And the guy has this brilliant classic line. He says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I couldn't see yesterday, and I can see today. And the Bible says, out of that even the guy's parents were under such religious pressure that when the Pharisees put that question to them, they were like, well, you're gonna to have to ask our son because they didn't wanna get put out of the synagogue because God knows there's nothing worse than getting excommunicated from a religious body. They call Jesus in, Jesus comes in and they're excoriating him because of some things that he said and Jesus looks at them and says, you know what? The real blindness that I've come to deal with is not the blindness of that guy. The real blindness is the blindness of you. People who have eyes wide open but don't see a thing. This is the kind of seeing that Paul is talking about. He's not just saying the good news is that some people spotted Jesus because there were probably a lot more people who maybe maybe saw him with their physical eyes, but but he leads with... This is the good news, when he arose, he was seen by Peter. Peter saw him. He was seen by Thomas. The week after when he pulled back the robe, Thomas said, I am not going to believe unless I can see it myself. And he pulls back the robe and extends his hand. Master Thomas fell down and said, my Lord and my God, that's the kind of seeing that we're talking about. Oh, he was seen by Mary when she looked at him and said, where have you laid my Lord? Oh, she saw him. She got her hands on him. But when he said, Mary, she said, "Rabboni." He was seen. Easter tide is a season of seeing. The Bible says that as he was headed off to the cross, he had taken his three disciples, the inner core—Peter, James, and John—to Gethsemane to pray. And the first hour he came back and he found them sleeping and he said, would you please wake up and pray with me? The second hour he came back, they were sleeping. And he said, please, would you just watch with me? The third time he came back, the Gospel of John says he came back and he found them sleeping. Listen to this. He literally looked at them and said, sleep on. And the next words out of his mouth, Lee, he said, sleep on, rise, let us be going. That's... Spiritual sleepwalking. They were awake when he said sleep on. Rise, let us be going. A lot of our spiritual journey is spiritual sleepwalking. I mean, every now and then it happens to the best of us and the worst of us. I mean, you, you, you end up getting to the place where you're going and you realize that you don't even remember the trip. That's scary, isn't it? When you've driven somewhere and you get there and you realize I wasn't paying any, how did I even get here? That's the kind of spiritual sleepwalking that we can get into. Paul said the good news is that in Eastertide, he touches our eyes. Revelation 3, Jesus said, I counsel you that you're poor and you're blind and you're naked. He was talking to the Laodiceans. They were a medicinal capital of the world. They were an incredible market of trade. And they were a spiritually advanced people. They also were a clothing capital in, in that part of the Levant. And all of these things they thought they were the best at, he said, you're actually poor and blind and naked but I counsel you to buy of me eye salve that I might touch your eyes that they might see. Paul said the good news is that in that space of time when we had gone spiritually blind, we were stumbling around like fools trying to make our way back to our nets and our jobs, put our life back together. We were going to the tomb and we were anointing his body. We were huddled in little rooms wondering which of us were going to be the next one killed, fearing persecution. We, we were destroyed and he walked through the wall and we saw him. And we dropped to our knees. And Paul said, I, I gotta tell you, it wasn't just them in that 50 day period because Eastertide isn't just the physical space between the first resurrection morning and the first Pentecost. But Paul said, "I live in the Easter tide myself because I wasn't in that space, but I was in the next space." And I want to tell you about me. He said, "I was on my way, a precocious thirty-something Pharisee who was climbing the ladder to the top of the Sanhedrin. I had all—I had the best of both worlds. I, I, I knew all of the languages. I was trilingual, tricultural, Jewish, Roman, and Hebrew. My resume was stunning." And when they picked somebody to be a head, the head of the pogrom, the persecution, the cleansing of these followers of the Nazarene, they picked me. It was gonna be the thing that padded my resume the most, quelling this upstart religion that threatens the status quo. And Paul said, eyes wide open on my way to Damascus. I had already done this in several other places. Acts eight and nine describes it. It's, it's Holocaust material. Paul said, I was the guy that led the charge. We literally drug people. That's what the Bible says. We drug them out of their homes. That's, that's a picture of cattle cars. Paul said, I was in the middle of that. I'm standing there behind my religious robes and they're dragging people out of the house. They're not Coming easily, they're getting drug out of the house. That's children at the front window screaming, Daddy, Mommy! Paul said, I did that. In the name of God, I did that. And I thought I was right. I was certain. I knew what I knew. But then I came to Eastertide I didn't know anything about a resurrection. I thought his death was just. It was only a good Friday because a bad man died. And yet even with that resume of soul, I was in Eastertide when I was knocked off of a donkey onto my back and a light shone round about me. And I was stricken blind. And it was the clearest I'd ever seen. Physically blinded. I stumbled through the darkness and felt toward the light. And I knew that I was encountering the divine. I assumed that this would be an encounter that would underscore and undergird my work. Perhaps the divine had come to pat me on the back. Yahweh had come like Moses at the burning bush to say you're doing good son. Go kill those people who follow Jesus. And he began to speak And as he began to speak, in the few lines that he spoke to me, every part of my religious life began to dismantle. Every degree, every memorized verse, every hope for advancement, everything my mom and dad ever taught me, everything I learned at the feet of Gamaliel, dismantled, and I had never been so blind. And discombobulated in my Easter tide, I reached up and said, "Who are you? Who the, are you?" And a tender voice came, "I am Jesus whom you persecute." And certainty began to evaporate. No, certainty was obliterated. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me?" Knowest not that it's hard to kick against the pricks. I've been trying to lead you, son. And Paul said there was nothing left to say, but what do I do? And led blindly, humbly. Oh, that's Easter tide. I don't know. I don't know anything anymore. Humbly and blindly, vulnerably uncomfortable into the house of a man named Ananias. He hears the message, the good news, and Paul said, when that old man laid his hands on me, it was like scales fell off on my eyes. And the physical scales that fell to the floor, and the squinting as the light hit my eyes for the first time in three days with perception. Such a gift of vulnerability, such a gift of grace. And Paul said, this is the good news, he was seen. I saw him. Oh, the beauty of someone you love looking at you. I had a 10 year old little girl with tears in her eyes, tell me last night that I wasn't listening to her. What else to do, Bob, except get down and get your faces close and say, okay, try Dad again. Her last year has not been easy. She's turned into a little bit of a piece of plywood to hug. But as I listened to her, cried with her. She did something she hadn't done in a while. She initiated, wrapped her arms around me, and she was just saying, it feels so good to be seen. It feels so good to be heard. Eastertide represents a space for blind people to see God, to see life, to see reality, to see Jesus, to see ourselves, to see everything differently, newer, clearer, When I first entered Eastertide some 20 years ago, some call it deconstruction. And I want to say this about deconstruction. Some of you are so tired of being deconstructed. Good news. Eastertide's not just about deconstruction. Eastertide is about reconstruction. And we probably ought to take the re off because you're probably not going to reconstruct. You're probably going to construct something completely different and new. But to be able to have Jesus still at the center of that for me, Eastertide did not shift them from having Jesus as their object of devotion to something else, Eastertide simply shifted the way they saw him. And I just wanna say this about Eastertide, I wish I could tell you that Eastertide is like Fowler or Piaget's stages of growth for the human, um, but Eastertide is not that clean, and spiritual soul-making is not that clean. This is, we, we, we don't have that clean space that Erickson and Piaget talked about where you're this, and then you're this, and then you're adolescent, and then you're this, and there are all these phases of construction. I wish I could tell you you spend the first third of life naively constructing and inheriting a faith and an ideology and a worldview, a zeitgeist, whatever you call it, and then you get through that phase and you go into deconstruction and you spend your 20s and 30s deconstructing, and then when you get to totally deconstructed, you, you meet Jesus and the scales fall off of your eyes, God touches you, you meet the divine, however it works for you, you meet God and you move into this phase in your 40s and 50s that just moves you straight into sageness and you never look back, that's not true. The soul-making process for all of us is a paschal cycle of life and death and burial and resurrection and appearances and departures. And there's no phase where you get tenure, there's no phase where you finally say, all of my deconstruction is over, I've reconstructed everything and I have a house that now I can be fully satisfied with. That's just not the way it works. Can some of you in your 60s and 70s say amen to that? Oh, you didn't want to say amen because you didn't want anybody to know you were in your 60s and 70s, but can some of you in your 40s and 50s say amen to that? Last thing I would say is Eastertide is an unsettling time when gone is what you know Eastertide is an unsettling time when here is what you don't know and you don't know how to deal with this this Jesus how do you deal with a Jesus who's here and there and disappearing and a Jesus that you're having to let go of it's an unsettling time. It's the vulnerability of being between swings for the trapeze artist. You've let go and you're sailing through the air and you haven't grabbed the other. That, I never like to let go of one swing till I get my hand on the other, right? I, I'm the guy when Jesus says, come to me on the water. I hold onto the side of the boat and test the surface tension. And as soon as that holds, I'll let go. But in soul-making, there really is this space of you've gotta let go before the water holds, a little bit. Because there's a lot of Christ-making in that vulnerable Gethsemane of letting go of the boat and not quite feeling the ground and the tension of the water. That space of falling. Certainty is way overrated. And I just wanna say, finally, that for me, Jesus did not give me a final orthodoxy. Jesus did not give me a final constructed faith, the church did. Jesus Christ did not give me a final set of doctrines, Christianity did. Jesus never did either of those things. What Jesus did give me was a way of living life a truthful way of living life. Vulnerably, humbly, hands wide open. The disciples of Jesus were those that I went to for healing, and they said, okay, but you've got to believe perfectly. And I said, I don't. I believe, help my unbelief. And they said, go to the back of the line. And then Jesus comes down the mountain, and it says, what's wrong? And the disciples say, the guy, he just didn't believe enough. And Jesus says, he didn't. Well, fella, what's wrong? And the guy says, my kid, he's tortured. He throws himself into the fire. He has seizures, and I, I'm falling apart. My wife and I, we're at one another's throat all the time, and this little guy is hurting so bad. And Jesus said, well, do you believe? And the guy said, no. Well, I do, but I believe, help my unbelief. And he winced, waiting for another word like the disciples gave him. And Jesus looked at him and said, that'll do just fine. That'll do. I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus did not give me final orthodoxy. Jesus did not give me a set of doctrines. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Which means Jesus is the truthful way of living. And one of the last things that I heard him say the last two things I heard him say on this earth when he was living a life like mine was the most conflicted thing you could possibly hear. The second, the penultimate word from his mouth was my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the last word out of his mouth was father into thy hands I commit my spirit. And how you get those two things in the same mouth at the same time, i tell you how you do it because even Jesus was entering into Eastertide and Eastertide is a space for I believe, help my unbelief Eastertide is a space for my God, where have you gone and I commit my life to you to whom else will I go still the best bet I feel that. And the best bet is not certainty and getting a final answer. The best bet is giving myself to the truthful way of life. An openness. A journey. And for me, I used to say all the time that Jesus saved God for me. But these days I say God has saved Jesus for me. Because I'm really coming back around and i like this jesus didn't used to used to be scared to death of him but that jesus has gotten fired because it wasn't the true one and little by little as the scales fall from your eyes in the easter tide season and you see him i don't know if your experience is the same as mine i think you're going to like what you see He's more wonderful than we've known. His grace is greater, his love is deeper, his life is richer. And if you really hear him, if you really hear him, you'll hear him saying things completely different than the church has said to you. You'll hear him over and over and over again saying, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's better than you think. So the next five weeks, we're going to walk through Eastertide, and we're going to walk through some things that all of us are reframing. And for those of you that are in the first wake and the devastation of deconstruction, and you're so tired of being deconstructed, I get it, I get it, I get it, hang in there. The Spirit of God will not leave you there. Some of you are ripe and raw and ready for Jesus to begin to piece the mosaic back together for you. And I would like to encourage you, little by little, just open your heart to the process. Open your heart to construction. But here's the best piece of advice I can give you. Naive construction that all of us grew up with, inherited faith, is the ideas are cemented together with this glue called certainty. In a reconstructed spirituality, a beginner soul, the true wisdom of childlikeness, you're gonna to have to let go of the glue of certainty and accept the adhesive of mystery and trust. And it actually all holds together a lot better without the super glue of orthodoxy, but the true spirituality of mystery. It's just a lot better way of living. Can you say amen? amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these good folk, for open hearts, open minds, open souls and thank you for Eastertide. We've done Christmas, we've done Advent, we've done Lent, we've done Easter. We do a lot of the holy times really well. For some reason, we skip over Eastertide and I think I know why, because it's an uncomfortable season. Help us to embrace the discomfort and thereby open ourselves open ourselves to new, fresh, living ideas, experiences. Make us new, sweet Christ, and help us to see, help us to experience the good news that Christ didn't just die and rise, but Christ was seeable. May it ever be so. We pray these things in Christ's name. And God's people said, amen.